ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bible in a Year podcast. We are in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, and we are so thankful that you've joined us here. I'm your host, Jay Smith. With me today, as always, Jimmy Doyle and Travis Bruno. Gentlemen, how are we doing? Hello, hello. We're doing good. Good, 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 good. This is uh, because of life. We're recording uh, a total of three podcasts in two days, uh, all dealing with the Gospel of Mark. And so we feel both prepared and also hopefully not too repetitive. And so thank you for joining us. I want to encourage you, as we always do, to join us as we read through the Gospels. You can do that by going to read-scripture.com. There's a space for form. We believe that Scripture is intended to be read in community. So take some time to do that. Join us in discussion. And I know that there's ebbs and flows of, of how that works. But if you have fallen away a little bit from engaging in conversation, we just encourage you to join us because it's encouraging and uh, I think beneficial as we walk through the Gospels. We're in Mark chapter 10, as I mentioned, and the very first passage as we get into the Gospel of Mark is a very difficult one. Uh, this is Jesus's teaching on divorce. And this comes, and I'll paraphrase a little bit, and we'll read a little bit of it. Uh, this comes, the Pharisees ask Jesus questions about, is it lawful? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife or to do, uh, or, or for even ultimately Jesus makes it for a wife to divorce her husband? And I think it's important for us, before we get started, to just acknowledge the fact that this is a very difficult text, uh, especially in a culture uh, well, it would have been a difficult text in the culture that it was also initially heard in, too, because divorce was relatively uh, common in both the Jewish culture and in the Roman or Greco-Roman culture. But we just know that there are people who are listening to this and are reading this who've walked through the pain of divorce and are still dealing with that and, and feel very um I don't know, like this is just a hard passage for them. And so more than anything, what we want you to hear and what you want, we want you to read is that uh, is that there's grace over all of this. And in the midst of it is that this is just hard and there's not going to be some sort of clean answer that we're going to be able to give you uh, just because there's some uniqueness to the text and some difficulty in the text. And so we're going to do our best to help us understand this a little bit better. Uh, but with all that said, let's let's get into the text itself. So we, like I said, we're in the Gospel of Mark, chapter ten, and we're going to be reading uh, verses one through it's it's all the way down to twelve. But I'll just read parts of it. Uh, so as I mentioned, Jesus left the place, went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan re- River. Crowds gathered again. Some of the Pharisees came. They asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And then Jesus answers. Here we pick up in verse three. What did Moses command you? They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of dismissal. I'm reading from the NET today. A certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, he wrote this commandment for you because of your hard hearts. But from the beginning of creation, he... Uh, being God, made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and the two will become one flesh so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then verse nine, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And then there's this moment in Mark 10, 10, where Jesus it kind of transitions where the explanation is. And so Jesus in the house, once again, the disciples asked him about that. And so Jesus told them, whoever divorces his wife marries and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Uh, there's a lot to unpack from this passage. And so, Jamie, I'm going to let you actually start with this. What are some things as far as cultural context that you feel like are important for us to recognize before we do the work of trying to make this uh, make sense to us? Um, well, I think the reality that 
we know, but it's hard, <clears throat> is that ancient and modern cultures are man-centric. They focus on what works for men and not necessarily what works for women. <clears throat> this is also true of uh, sections of Old Testament law and Old Testament scripture. It's uh, very patriarchal societies. And so in the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, God does allow for divorce. It's always the man who gives a divorce. The word for a divorce is a get, and the plural that is getim. So a man would write a certificate of divorce, which would be a get, and give it to his wife. And the thing is, is in our culture, we think of these things in terms of like courts of law and state and all of those things. In the ancient Jewish world, marriage was between families. And so uh, a marriage would be arranged by families. And then if a divorce took place, a man did not have to go before any court. He could just write a certificate of divorce to his wife and send her out. And that's all based on uh, Deuteronomy. You can look up Deuteronomy chapter 22. Um, There's several passages in Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 19, 28 through 29. And by the time you get down to Jesus, um, divorce, and, and I want to say this too, in the Old Testament, God often refers to Israel, his people, as his wife. And in the New Testament, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. So this marriage uh, idea is also of humans is also kind of overlaid in the scripture with this kind of divine idea of marriage. And the marriage between God and his people is pretty uh, volatile at times. And I need to say this, like in the Old Testament, God divorces his people and he remarries her. And he says, that's a shameful thing. And actually in Deuteronomy, it says a man cannot remarry his wife after divorcing her. But God does that in the book of Jeremiah. So I just want to say that like there are some things going on. And in the book of Malachi, um, and we know this from Ezra and Nehemiah, when the Jews came back from Babylon from exile, many of them had married wives of foreign origin who were not Jewish. And Ezra and Nehemiah encouraged them to divorce those foreign women. <clears throat> so there's a lot of controversy there. And then in Malachi, there's a passage in the Hebrew that says God hates divorce. Even in a book that people are being encouraged to divorce foreign Wives. So it's kind of complicated. By the time you get to Jesus, there are these Aramaic translations of the Old Testament law and of the entire Old Testament called Targums. They're translated into Aramaic. And what's interesting is in the Aramaic translation of that Malachi passage, it doesn't say God hates divorce. It says, if you hate her, send her away. If you don't like her, send her away. And so it might surprise people at the time of Jesus, the divorce rate was probably as high as it is in the United States right now. Lots of divorce going on. Josephus, that first century historian who writes in the second half of the first century, he was married. He divorced his wife. We know from the rabbis that they're talking about how if a, if a woman miscooks a meal for you, you can divorce her is what one school of thought and rabbinic thought said. Another school of thought said, no, no, you can't do that. You can only, they kind of agree with Jesus. You can only get divorced in the case of adultery, which is in the Matthew version of this Mark passage, that's what Jesus says. He adds this element of if adultery has taken place, then you can get divorced. But any other reason, if you get divorced and you remarry, you also commit adultery or make your wife commit adultery. So it's kind of a complicated thing. That's a lot of stuff going on. It's not unlike questions I think about divorce today in the sense that it's it's prominent. Um and this is a difficult passage because there is no caveat here. There is no passage like there is in Matthew here. There's no except for the case of adultery. Jesus says, 
if you get divorced and you remarry, you commit adultery. And uh, I think, I don't know. I, I don't really have answers to that one um, as to how that was. We know that in the early church that it was kind of interpreted that way. Paul later says, hey, don't get divorced. And if you get divorced, you probably shouldn't remarry. Um, so uh, issues of marriage and divorce have been a, a big deal the whole time, and they still are a big deal in relationships and brokenness in the world. <clears throat> in the third century, that compilation of Jewish law that takes place in the second century, the Mishnah, there's a whole tractate, a whole section called Gittim. It's about divorce law and what works and how it works. Um, so I guess I would say this, like this is a hard passage today. I think it would have been hard to hear then. I think uh, this is one of those elements where the scripture still applies to things that we're, we're dealing with day in and day out in our own lives and in our communities today. So uh, something to be wrestled with. Yeah. Travis, why don't you help it make sense for us, man? What, what kind of wisdom are you going to bring to us today? Uh, I wish I knew. Um, I don't know that I can really bring much more to that to make it make sense. And even, um, a lot of my thoughts, I don't know that I can articulate well, um, other than I just feel like I want to say that it, it's, it's not as simple and like, well, it's just not as simple as maybe this seems. And I don't mean that to like devalue the authority of the words of Jesus or anything like that. But, um, I think Jimmy, a lot of the things you said help just in my mind, trying to process and figuring out like what to do as I hold this passage in my mind and think about it. Like there's a lot of things, um, that come into play. It's not just that last verse, um, that he equates marriage to another as adultery. Um, and again, I, I'm not trying to say that like that was just hyperbole and it's fine and you know, it is whatever, but, uh, it's, it's that, that tension. Uh, I'm trying to find the balance between like, understanding what isn't good. Um, and then ultimately like we aren't good. And so like there is grace for things and it's not like a, an end all verse. Um, but you can have grace and still understand the weight of sin and try to be better. I don't know. Yeah. And I think this passage too. So, you know, we've talked about this before. We want to look at things in light of the whole context of Scripture. And that's not in order so that we can set Scripture aside, but so that we can understand it more fully and understand ourselves and our world more, more, more fully. So, first of all, in this passage, Jesus acknowledges, hey, there was, a, there was an ideal way that God had planned this to become one flesh kind of an idea. But because of the hardness of your hearts, there was also a caveat to that an understanding that there may be a need for ways out of that that are also allowed, right? <clears throat> the question isn't what did Moses command, but what did Moses, ultimately Jesus turns it around. What did Moses allow? And because of the hardness of your hearts, because of this reality of sin, God allowed for uh, broken marriages and mistakes to end in a separation, in a divorce, a sending away. And that gets used and misused, right? Overused, maybe uh, I wouldn't say underused, but there there clearly are situations that Jesus would say, yeah, this was hardness of heart issues created a situation where divorce was allowable. So we live in a broken world. And in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've talked about this on other podcasts, 
Jesus says, you know, what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And we know that this is Jewish legal language that you can bind a law on somebody and you can loose somebody from keeping a command, a law. So, you know, on the Sabbath, you should do no work. Does that mean that you don't help anybody? Well, you're loose from that rule for doing no work in order to save a human life because that has higher value. And there's this way of understanding things from a Jewish perspective that says uh, God's commands and God's laws are meant to be worked with inside the context of human experience, that they're not so static that they can't always be moved. There are some things that can't be moved, can't be loosed, but for the sake of human wholeness, sometimes things can be moved. And we know that sometimes that gets overused, right? Jesus has talked about that already in the traditions of the elders. You know, you uh, have said that your possessions belong to God so that you don't have to give them to your parents to support them. That's not what God intended. You're actually using your traditions to set aside what God intended. So I think we could get carried away with that. But I guess I would say for people listening, um, take the whole thing into account. Take the whole scripture into account where even in God's story, there's difficulty in marriage. Even in God's story, there's divorce. Um, and certainly in the bigger story, there is this grace thing where God wants to restore to wholeness in relationships. But sometimes that wholeness, you know, wholeness for individuals might mean divorce. And uh, that's a hard hard thing to think about in our reality, and it's hard for families. Uh, but I, what I wouldn't want to do is take one passage of Scripture and say that's that's the only thing that matters about how we approach issues in life. I don't think that's a good way to approach scripture. So, yeah, and I, it, one of the things I've always tried to do is to let, especially the gospels, uh, inform the gospels. Right. So you see, Jesus teaches this way, uh, which one of the things that is important is in a patriarchal society as the first century would have been is Jesus leveling the playing field in this area. Um, as far as divorce would have been something that would have been substantial and giving this reality that it wasn't just some freedom for men to do whatever they would like, uh, at the drop of a hat. So that is a part of it that is pretty countercultural, at least to the Jewish way of life in the first century. But for me, as I was drawn, when we started prepping for today's podcast, like drawn towards the story of Jesus and the woman at the well and this offer of living water that Jesus gives to her, knowing the fullness of her story. Uh, and that's how I always find this kind of peace in the midst of this is, is God in the person of Jesus recognizes that this is not the Genesis chapter one and two intention uh, but seeing through the brokenness of of the world, he also is offering living water to somebody who has, uh, according to his own words, you know, walked away from a marriage multiple times and uh, was living outside of marriage even in that moment. And so it is important to recognize that that the gospels do inform the gospels often as well. And so uh I don't know. I don't. We we really pledged before we started this podcast that we weren't going to glance over that passage, which is the easier thing to do. Be like chapter ten actually starts in verse thirteen, uh, but the we just feel like it's important because we do. We say this every time is that we believe that the whole story is the whole story of God, and I know that there are many things that you could probably even pinpoint in our. Uh, understanding a scripture where there are things that we heighten the value of and lessen the value of. And one of the commitments we try to do is at least to give uh, a good amount of time 
to try to wrestle with hard texts as much as the fun ones and the easy ones. And so uh, I don't want to move too fast, Travis, but give you just like a, any other kind of closing thoughts on that initial passage in, in Mark 10. Yeah, I just one thing that I was realizing as you were uh, sharing that kind of comparison with the woman at the well and um, kind of taking a step back from this specific passage. Um, and so, you know, correct me if I'm making too big of an assumption, but when I think about like the words of God, the words of Jesus and the actions and how he act, act, truly responds, um, you know, one thing that we see it, you know, Jesus references because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Like one of the things about Jesus for me always comes down to the heart for him. Like there are commands and there are rules, but he responds to your heart. And so, um, I feel like we see throughout the story, um, in scripture, when there is hardness of heart, when you're open, when you're not open, when you're closed off for whatever reason, um, the response seems to be more rule based, like here are these restrictions, here are these guidelines or whatever. But, um, the places that we see God and we see Jesus respond with mercy and with grace and with love. Um, and again, maybe this is too much of an assumption, but are to those people that, um, I think have an openness and a softness of heart. Uh, so the woman at the well, like she wasn't, I mean, yes, she was sort of trying to hide all those things in the sense that she wasn't being open about it. But, um, I think in her connection and conversation with Jesus, like she was open and, um, and so he responds to that openness with grace instead of, um, restriction. So I don't know. Is that a, is that a fair thing to take from it? <laughs> I think that what I hear you saying, Travis is, I, I don't think it's about a fair thing or a, I think you're taking the work of the spirit in the words of scripture and allowing space in your own heart to try to help the scripture, not, not taking the scripture out of context, which can be a dangerous thing, but I think that is an, an interpretation and, and an insight that I don't think there's a wrongness to it uh, as much as it's just your, your insight to that passage. But yeah, we see that just earlier is like, it's not the things that you put in your body that make you unclean, right? It's the things, your heart, it's, it is a heart matter for this. Um, and Jesus does also at the end of that passage, cause that's immediately where I went. And I was like, well, Jesus does says, say at the end, like, here's the things that do come out of the heart and sexual immorality is one of them, right? Which would be kind of in this alignment. So it's, I, I think for me is it's always, and it sounds like a cop out, but there is this reality. You do have to acknowledge the complexity of the biblical narrative around issues like this, um, and that's, this won't be the first one. If you've ever engaged in the New Testament studies or the Old Testament studies, is there are things that you're going to get to and you're just going to, it's going to make you pause, back up, uh, feel conflicted and and even be in disagreement with. And, and I always kind of encourage people like, don't avoid those things, lean in, do your own research, have conversation about it. Uh, and then there is space for you to come to even agreements that, that maybe differ from people that have gone ahead of you, you know, and studied this more in depth. So Jimmy, any closing statements kind of surrounding this before we move on to the rest of Mark 10? No, man, I think, I mean, I think that's all good, right? I mean, it's okay. not good. It's hard. Yep. All right. Moving on to 13. And if you listen to chapter nine or read chapter nine is, is you remember there are going to be some parallels here in chapter 10. Uh, that you should be able to really pick up pretty quickly. The first one's here in 13. Now, people were bringing little children to Jesus to touch, but the disciples scolded those who brought them. 
But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me and do not try to stop them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. After he took the children in his arms, he placed his hands on them and blessed them. We don't have to spend a ton of time on this, but it does feel important to at least acknowledge a few things. So uh, people bringing kids to Jesus, um, is that a blessing rabbinic teacher wise or is this a reflection of Jesus's power or authority or is it kind of both of those things? I think the general interpretation is that this would be like. <clears throat> these prayers are blessings or prayers for protection. I mean, the same reason that people are bringing Jesus to heal people. It's just a world where you see someone in this uh, authoritative power of dealing with spiritual and physical maladies. Uh, you want to make sure that your uh, child is not going to be affected by the evil eye or a spirit that comes in. And that's probably the idea. It's kind of the idea of protection. What's interesting is the chapter before Jesus says, Whoever receives a child, because he'd brought a child into their midst, talking about who's the greatest, <clears throat> and that they should compare themselves to children. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. He's talking to them about receiving children just a chapter before. And now they're trying to bring children, and the disciples are like, oh, no, no, don't bother him with the kids. <laughs> right? Like, they just don't really get it. Uh, and so he's able to lean in again to talk about, uh, you know, children, and this is going to contrast with the. I think I think it contrasts with the next story because children didn't have possessions; they didn't own anything. They had children were they weren't not romanticized as they are in our culture, where we elevate children status. And the next chat, the next segment is going to be a, about a man who has everything. So I think there's also that contrast. This is yeah. setting that up. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think you can clearly see that. I don't want to move too quickly, but just making that connection while it's relevant. And Travis, you can bring us back if there's something we missed in that. So moving on to verse 17. And and this is a story that's relatively familiar. Uh, most people know this and most people ignore this. And so let's hear these words maybe with fresh ears. So now as Jesus was starting out on his way, someone ran up to him, fell on his knees and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit life? Jesus said, and what do you, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Uh, You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. The man said to him, teacher, I have wholeheartedly obeyed all these laws since my youth. As Jesus looked at him, he felt love for him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell whatever you have and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But at this statement, the man looked sad and went away sorrowful, for he was very rich. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were astonished at these words. But again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Verse 27, Jesus looked at him and replied, this is impossible for mere humans, but not for God. All things are possible for God. All right, we are here in a story of the rich young ruler as defined in other retellings of this story, the rich young man. Uh, just a few things I'll affirm from my my reading of it. Uh And I probably have caught it before and just didn't remember it. But the fact that Jesus felt love for this man, I think that's such a uh, I think that's just an important thing 
uh, as Jesus wasn't moved with anger towards him, but moved with love, but yet still challenges him to go and sell his possessions. Uh, you lack one things, obedience to the law. All of those things you were supposed to do, yes, you did those things, but what you didn't or what you need to do is to to sell all of your stuff to follow him. Uh, I don't want to skirt over some of this reality, but but there is a significant piece. We were talking before we started recording of Jesus's value system when it comes to money and stuff. Um, I think in especially 2022 Western church, but probably throughout the majority of the church is is very easy to take this and make this a specific contextual passage. Uh, But we just challenge you to not do that, to see that there is an overarching reality in the greatness of man, right? And their financial success, their stuff not being uh, of importance and downright being destructive to the work that Jesus was bringing to the earth. And so if you look at it contrastingly to the story of the children, if you don't accept the kingdom of God like these children who have nothing, who have little value to no value in the eyes of first century, who uh, don't earn anything or bring anything with them to enter into the kingdom of God. I think that's the message uh, that is really important that, that Mark is making sure that we hear here. So that's enough for me. I'll move on to Travis or Jimmy. What are you, uh, what are some insights you want to make sure we don't miss from this? We should sell all of our possessions and give to the poor. I mean, you know, I think that um, one, I, I think Jesus does use hyperbole a lot you know, or frequently. And he's using this analogy uh, that I think is also hyperbole. I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, rich people can't be saved. I don't think he's saying that because he says all things are possible with God. But he's told a parable already about, you know, the parable of the sower, where one of the things that keeps the good news of the kingdom from flourishing is the deceitfulness of riches and the wealth of this world. And... um. I think we be, it's easy for us to begin to trust in riches. The Old Testament and New Testament, there are, are clearly wealthy people who follow God in the Bible. But the truth is, is there's a skepticism about, there's a negativity about riches in the scripture. And it's true in the New Testament as well. Passages that don't get read from pulpits very often, like the book of James, where they don't show favoritism to people who are well-dressed and and all, and then not show favoritism to somebody who's poor and make them sit at your feet. And is it not the rich who oppress you? And, and take advantage of you. And God has chosen the poor to be those who are rich in faith, right? Like there are those elements that I think that we need to, especially as Americans in the United States who have plenty of things that we need to take into consideration that our model is Jesus. According to Paul in second Corinthians, he says, you know, our model is Jesus who, though he was rich, made himself impoverished for our sakes. And in that passage, he's challenging the Corinthian church to be generous towards Judean Christians that they hadn't even met that were suffering poverty. And what he says is, is, you know, it's not that God wants you to be hard pressed. It's not that he wants you to be starving because you've given up everything. But what God desires is equality, that those who have much don't have too much and those who have little don't have too little. And I think that's the kingdom value. So here's a guy that comes that has everything. And Jesus says to him, there's still something that you lack. And that passage about the children, he says, to them belongs the kingdom of God. Like these children possess the kingdom of God. This man has great possessions, but he's still missing something. And uh, and he goes away sad because he can't let go of his possessions for the sake of, of uh, giving to those who have need and following Jesus. 
And the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says this, by the way, to all of his followers. He said, little flock, the Father desires to give you the kingdom. He's pleased to give you the kingdom. He wants you to have the kingdom of God, another way of living, another way of being, not just in the afterlife, but now. And he says, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and then you will have treasures in heaven. And uh, that's a, in the Jewish culture at the time, this idea of having treasure in heaven was the idea that you share your possessions with the poor. And because of that, you have better relationships here and in the world to come. Those who were poor honor you and welcome you into their houses because you help take care of them. They help take care of you in the world to come, and that's treasure in heaven. And so I think Jesus is challenging this person and us to think in terms of how we relate. Do we, am I someone who has uh, too much? And there are people around me who have too little, and God wants me to, to look at that world. He wants me to repent and see the world differently. It's not about my own comfort and my own safety. It's about taking care of other people as well. Um, and it would be a humbling. It's a hard thing. If you have possessions, it's hard to give them up, without a doubt. And maybe that's why the kingdom of God is more for the, the poor than it is for the rich. You know, Jesus says, what are you who are rich? Because you've already received your reward in the gospel of Luke chapter 6. He says, blessed are you who are poor right? Like, because the kingdom of God belongs to you. If I don't have anything, it's easy for me to enter. I'm only gaining from the kingdom of God at that point. If I have a lot of things to lose, it's a hard, that's a harder thing. I'm like this rich man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, where I go similarly is like the, that line that his response, Jesus' response to him is you lack one thing. And again, kind of in a general sense, uh, he doesn't tell him, I mean, he does tell him what to do, but his initial response isn't you need to do one thing, but he's pointing out a, a lack that he has. And like kind of the word play in my mind is like what you lack is lacking. Like you are too sufficient. You have enough. Um, and Jimmy, right. Like the, what to do with that isn't just to like throw it away, but to, to make things equal, make things right with what you have. And, um, and so I think, you know, for me, like, we don't have necessarily an abundance of money, but I think about all of the things that I have, whether it's possessions or maybe more abstract things, that the things that I have that are enough um, and how often like my self-sufficiency is a roadblock for trust in God and furthering the kingdom, like not just my relationship with God, but my actions and my life. Like the more that I don't need anything beyond myself, like the less the kingdom will come in my life because I'm just content and sitting on my couch or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is studies, even in the United States is that, uh, people in poverty are more generous than people who have wealth. Percentage of their income, people in poverty, uh, poor people give away more than rich people do, uh, percentage wise. And, um, and maybe that is like we, we begin to trust in it. We, we need it. It's like almost an addiction. We think we need these things. Uh, what's interesting, too, is that the disciples' response to all this is like, wow, then who can be saved? But then they're quick to go, but we've left everything, Jesus. We've given up everything. And, and Jesus encourages them. He says, I tell you, man, if you've left, you know, your, whatever you've left, your home, your father, your mother, your children, you're going to receive that much as more. You're going to receive in the kingdom of God, you get back. You get back. Uh, and I think it's too important to point out that the rich man does go away sad. 
that we can, I can miss the kingdom of God by not following Jesus, by not giving things up. It's not like, hey, everybody, it's happy for everybody. I can miss it, just like the rich man. And that makes Jesus sad, and it makes me sad. It makes the rich man sad um, to go away. Uh, one other thing I want to say real quick, because when I was a younger man, this came up a lot of times in churches I was in. That this, what this really was, was a gate in the in the walls of Jerusalem called the the needle, and that camels had to get down on their knees to go through this gate uh, in Jerusalem. That's not true. No, no archaeological evidence for that. No textual evidence for that. That becomes a that's a medieval Crusader era story that gets kind of made up. No truth of that in the first century. There was not a gate that camels had to get down on their knees to go through. The other thing is uh, the word for camel and the word for like a rope, like a ship's rope, they sound very similar. Uh, they're both camelas. And uh, some other people have said, well, that he was really talking about a big rope going through the eye of a needle. Well, the truth is that doesn't matter either way. Like a big rope's not going to go through the eye of a needle any more than a camel. But the word here is camel. Like he's using this hyperbolic image. Like a camel can't go through the eye of a needle. Like this this doesn't happen naturally. It can't happen. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he's using a strong image here on that. So, I think that's some tremendous insight. I don't have really anything to add. So I, I do feel like that is also a good time for us to just stop for this one. And uh, we'll come back and finish chapter 10 here in the next podcast. So thank you for listening to this one. And just want to encourage you as we did at the beginning, join us along this journey in the gospels at read-scripture.com. Thank you so much for listening. And we'll catch you with the rest of chapter 10 here in just a little bit. 